Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to another episode of Bite Into It. We've got Ro Murray. Hello. And Lily. Hello. And I'm Vanessa. Thanks for joining us. Tonight on our International Women's Day special, we're going to focus on the Data Informed Design Conference with Bonnie Shaw and Dr. Alison Keeley. That's coming up a little bit later in the show. Until then, we want to cover some news. Lily, what's been catching your eye? There have been a couple of things going on around the internet. Um, some of our favourite characters are coming out to play yet again. Um, everybody's least favourite main character of the internet, Elon Musk, has been at it again, breaking things and causing havoc. Uh, so the Twitter API is something that a lot of programmers use to make other apps based on Twitter. Um Musk is not a big fan of people doing that because it means they get to cut him out of a lot of the advertising. Um, And so a little while back, it was announced that they would be getting rid of that. So they're testing that feature now. And it broke the website recently. Yes, every time you even tried to hit a link that went off the website, that wouldn't work. No, no. It turns out that uh, that is kind of an important feature. And unfortunately, (laughs) they'd only staffed one site site reliability engineer on that particular project, um, I, I'm surprised to find that they have still got people working for them. Yeah. Um, oh, I laugh, but, you know, the pain is real. I feel bad yeah. for all of these people who believed in what they were doing over at Twitter. I know. It's it's just uh, it's heartbreaking to see this because it is a very complex product. So, of course, um, Musk was out there after it was fixed tweeting about how, of course, the, the product was garbage and would need a complete rewrite because it was so brittle and such and such. I mean, that's the other phenomena that people aren't used to seeing, this idea that the head of a company will come in and then um, transparently discuss all of the intricate workings of the company that they're not happy with in a way that, you know, we can only imagine how that must make the employees feel, you know, insecure, concerned, fearful, not to mention um, investors. I mean, of course, he famously uh, divested mm. uh as he took over because he didn't want to be accountable to investors because he doesn't have a great track record on that front. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting that you say that staff are probably not feeling that great because there have been reports that uh, – insider reports too that Musk has been walking around the building with two bodyguards at literally all times, um, including going to the bathroom and all of that kind of thing as well. So apparently he feels super safe with his choices there too. Yeah. Look, um, for anyone – interested in this sort of thing there was a a pretty huge self-own with Musk um, having a public employee HR conversation with uh, an amazing um, high profile employee and his his name I've got to read it because um, it doesn't flow off my tongue that easily it's uh, Hila Thorleifsson Um, so it's not that big a deal but I just want to get it right Um, it's important an Icelandic employer who was uh, employee, sorry, who became um, part of Twitter when his company was acquired. So he's a founder, um, and Harley has amazing design creds. You know, not just graphic design, but you know, designing for 
social outcomes, designing for the world, interaction design, you know, a really, a really um, visionary type of person. And the sort of person also with the, with the clout and the job security that they could publicly raise the issue that they didn't know whether they and lots of other employees had been fired because uh, they'd lost access to all these systems. And so they, they prosecute this discussion publicly on Twitter. Um, Elon is very dismissive. Um, and there's a fantastic sting in the tail because as, as an acquired founder who decided to take salary, if you just fire Harley, you owe the man $100 million US and um, as part of the exit package. Anyway, it's worth reading um, for a whole lot of reasons. Um, it touches on um, ableism and um, a, whole, a whole bunch of, of issues, but I think it, if you're on the fence about Musk, you probably wouldn't be after reading that conversation. Certainly not, no. Yeah. yeah. Nothing positive to say about the entire interaction, <laughs> the whole thing, um, except that um, you know, Harley has done a brilliant job of covering himself in glory, um, handling a really revolting situation with absolute aplomb and um, very carefully and successfully laid um, all the grounds that he might need to do in writing for a, an almighty lawsuit. <laughs> it, was, it was like a chess game, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was like, here's, here's a little trap, my friend. Yeah. And um, that greedy, greedy little Elon mouse was nibbling up the cheese. That is an excellent description. Mm. Anyway, well worth reading. And uh, go Harley, you know, doing it for the relatively little guy. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a question of scale. Yeah. Um, all right. Hey, the government has launched a dialogue starter. I've never heard that expression before. They've been they've been making too much sourdough, but um, a dialogue starter on STEM diversity. So the Department of Industry, Science and Resources kicked this off um, as part of their pathway to diversity in STEM review. Um, they want to start a genuine conversation about cultural and systemic barriers in STEM and what have you. Hey, hat tip to the sizzle for drawing our attention to this piece of news. Um, we. We're kind of interested in, um, I don't know, it's always interesting when a government jumps in on a conversation that's actually already very mature. Yeah. So you do wonder what they're trying to achieve with this. Um, have you have you had time to, you know, think about this at all? Yeah, I have. I, I do kind of like this. I mean, you're absolutely right that it is a very mature conversation. Some of us have probably got a Besser block shape carved into our forehead <laughs> at this point from smacking our heads up against the old uh, diversity and STEM discussion wall. Mm. Um, I, I do kind of like that um, in terms of submissions to it, they're happy for audio, video, photos, PDF files, doc files, all that kind of stuff. And that might be in recognition that it's a really mature conversation. Um, I remember Vic ICT for Women did a project about probably five years ago called Bold Moves where they did a white paper um, and did three projects over 12 months um, assessing diversity in STEM and presented it all as a big, you know, findings and white paper and everything. Well, that's a PDF they've got locked and loaded, ready to go, which has research, test cases, Brilliant. hackathon results, yeah. all sorts of stuff. And there will be mountains of that stuff well, out there. Well, we can there, only so. hope, you know, Vic Women's Trust and all these other organisations mm. will have a chance to jump in. 
But it'd be great to see individual stories get platformed there too. I mean, I remember a point in my career where I was, you know, naive enough to when someone asked me, oh, you know, do, what do you think about the, the problem of women in STEM and, you know, and I outlined the problems that I was seeing and they're like very disappointed in me. They sort of said, oh, you think, you know, it's you think it's a pipeline problem. Oh, and I just didn't have enough exposure to actually understand the more complex workings and, you know, where women were exiting in droves out of STEM fields. Um, and as I've gotten older in my career, that, that conversation has haunted me. Like it made such an impression, you know, to have disappointed this person who I found quite impressive. But just to be at a different place is very – it's actually fine. It's reasonable. And so it doesn't hurt to be having this conversation again. But I want to know, you know, what how do we hold do? you to outcomes? Yes. yes. <laughs> the outcomes are the important part, yeah. 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 Do the thing. Yes. For the love of all that is holy, do the thing. That's – Certainly right. <laughs> Speaking of loving all things holy, unless we want to cover any more news, oh, do we want to cover some chat GPT? We haven't touched it for a week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, when is there not some sort of something going on with chat GPT? But there has been some interesting conversation going on recently between um, a couple of different writers' organisations and the, the wider internet about the impact that ChatGPT is having on their industry overall. So the Writers Guild of America has um, has been meeting and um, the writers have, had, have made some demands relating to AI-generated content and how that will impact their industry. Uh, but uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, 22nd of February, um, the editor of Clark's World magazine, um, which is a science fiction magazine um, based out of the U.S., had uh, announced that they were closing their their usual open submissions portal uh, because they could not keep up with the flood of AI-generated content that was just spamming them. And it was very hard to sift it out because it does look like human-written product often. And it was only when you get part of the way through reading it that you'd really you'd really realise that Ooh. and you'd already spent the time doing it. Yes, and anything mm. you generate, you, you have a review and you go, oh, okay, this is where it's falling apart. You know, mm. I can see that. Yeah. And it's led to some really hard conversations about how indie publishers are going to cope with this kind of thing because it is a lot harder to weed that stuff out very quickly. So, Well, I mean, famously, the Australian publishing industry, well, I'm sure it's happened everywhere, but, mm. you know, have failed to notice mass plagiarism in, in some of our, you know, esteemed authors uh, and that's human sort of style plagiarism. Mm. So now that we've automated the ability to do this, one can only really empathise with um, the the size of the problem. Yeah, Yeah. and I was was reading about the Clark's World one and and it was really sad because the the whole whole point of the discussion was we are tiny, we are indie, I Mm. stay up all night drinking coffee doing this, you're ruining my life, I'm going to have to shut this down, I'm heartbroken to be doing it. So, you know... (sighs) It's, it's that good old flip side of the story, you know, AI can generate a lot of stuff and it'll probably end up doing a lot of good. Hmm. Why does it have to keep crashing into the arts though? Can't it automate the boring <laughs> stuff? Well, exactly. That's supposed to be the point of automation and labour saving, right? That, we, that we're able to make sure that those things are easier to do so that human beings can get on with doing the things that human beings are really good at, like the creative pursuits. And instead what we're doing is we're getting the AI to write the story while we sit there manually cataloguing our expenses. Yes, and I, I'm not quite sure what, you know, revelations we expect to have from art that comes out of zero contemplation. There's so many more complex discussions to have about this. Now is not the time to have it in our new segment. <laughs> what? Uh, but <laughs> we're, we're going to have to um, schedule something in on that topic. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. 
Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. You're with Bite Into It with Ro, Lily, and Vanessa. Thanks for joining us this evening. Tonight is a very special show for us. We're doing a feature on the uh, Data-Informed Design Conference and we're very lucky to have two linchpins of the conference with us here tonight. Bonnie Shaw is curator of the conference and co-founder of Place Intelligence. She cares deeply about the importance of data-informed design and uh, we'll get her to unpack that a bit with us. We're also joined by Dr Alison Keeley, who's Executive Director of Surveying and Spatial at Victoria's Department of Transport and Planning. She's got a background in all sorts of interesting things like geospatial data, which is such a sexy area of data integration, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that as well. Um, welcome so much to studio, you two. Thank you. It is a pleasure. So, Bonnie, we'd love to start with you because you are the person who had the spark that became the conference, the Data-Informed Design Conference. When did this become, you know, something that you, you realised you wanted to do? That's a great question. I, um, I got together with a few friends uh, late last year and in the work that we do, we're working across... Um, a whole range of different sectors and industries with uh, architects and designers and all sorts of interesting people. Yeah. And... Ah, uh, oh, there we go. Ah, uh, technical issues solved. <laughs> it was literally one of the cables was loose. <laughs> May all our future technical issues be that simple to fix. Did you try switching it yeah. off and on again? Yeah, protect it. I was Is it trying to kick something under the bench. <laughs> Sorry about that, Bonnie. No, all good. Um, so where did this come from? Um, so the work that I do uh, at Place Intelligence that our team does is around helping um, groups like architects and town planners and urban designers, policy makers, anyone really working across the built environment to access um, all sorts of different forms of data to inform their decision making and we see a, a pretty varied level of literacy. And so we really wanted to find a way to open up some of these really amazing, exciting opportunities and conversations that we have um, to a much wider audience. And so we basically made a list of our heroes, which included people like Alison, and we started calling people and uh, to see if they wanted to join us for a day of catalytic conversations and Pretty much every single person said yes. You can see that when you look at this conference <laughs> lineup because it is so stellar that when you said, who, sh who should we invite on the show with us on International Women's Day? We're like, anybody. They all look amazing. They're, They're incredible. Open to it. Yeah. All right. Um, that's great. And then why is there such a gap in this space, do you think? You know, do you think that there's many other conferences that try and touch on this? Yeah, that's... That's interesting. There, there's some incredible conferences around and, and opportunities to bring these groups together. But typically, like if you look in the, the design space, um, there's the uh, Planning Institute Conference, the Landscape Architecture Conference, but and they might have one or two sessions on the data or the kind of emerging technologies used in this practice. Um, if you go into a, a tech conference, they might have one or two sessions on... Um, urban technologies or spatial technologies but there's nothing really out there just for our special little niche 
Um, and uh, this, what we're trying to do is bring together people from across the whole sector um, and the spectrum of skills that are needed to do this work really well. So we've got advanced data scientists that are doing in crazy, all sorts of incredible crazy stuff with machine learning and, and advanced analytics. We've got um, the design practitioners who are then taking and interpreting those insights into architectural designs or transport planning or policy. We've got people that are working in community, in country, working with the, the people that are going to be most deeply affected by the outcomes of these designs and decisions. And so we're, we're bringing all of them together into this space to hold a, a conversation that's open and generative and open-hearted um, so that we can all contribute and build confidence that everyone across this spectrum has uh, a real contribution to make in evolving this practice. What do you think it is about this particular moment, it, culturally perhaps, that makes a conference like this resonate with people? It's it's so interesting. So I've I've had the absolute pleasure of getting to brief uh, a whole range of our speakers over the last week and, and start to catalyse these conversations. And I have a theory um, that may or may not prove out, but I actually think if you look back in time, back through history, at points in time where there were massive technological advancements, so you look at the Industrial Revolution, in landscape architecture, there was actually this shift towards a much more natural landscape. If you go back to the 1960s, 70s, when you know there was there's a huge advancement in in a whole range of different technologies, you actually you know you you see the hippie movement, you see this kind of return to um, a much more human kind of um, unstructured culture. And I think right now what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing come out of these initial conversations, which I think is probably in part a reaction to these kind of very technologically mediated interactions we have with things like ChatGPT, mm. um, this kind of embracing and reveling in this sort of messiness of humans and human decision-making and governance. And it's, um, it's really fascinating. And how does, how does messiness translate into data? Well, <laughs> I think Alison might be the best person to answer that. Um, so data needs to be clean and structured. Um, but when you get a... Uh, when you when you produce some outputs and insights um, and they connect with decision makers and communities that then have to value them and take action on them and decide what to do with them, um, you run into a huge amount of messiness, of bias, of, um, of kind of political and um, personal input that makes... Uh, a decision that, that could be really cut and dry with a piece of data. It, it could be a black and white yes, no answer. But when it hits the, the kind of the humanness of us, um, it's, it's rarely that simple. And how do you uh, how do you intend to dig into that? I know we have you've got quite the lineup, um, and I'm interested to know a bit more about the, the sorts of ways that you're you're going to probe at that particular problem because it is one of those big intractable things that's plagued. I think most of humanity's attempts to try and categorize and classify the world around them. We've always seen that prior attempts in this kind of way 
have have often led down some quite dark paths in some cases. Um, but there's also a lot of optimism and a lot of enthusiasm with what we've going on and a lot of people who have put a lot of thought into these things. So can you tell us a bit more about the sorts of ways that people are breaking that down and what we're expecting from the conference in terms of the points of view that are coming out there? Yeah, that's uh, I, I 100% agree that there are these ch- huge challenges um, particularly when we're using big data, um, mm. then it, it tends to scale some of the challenges. But what we're, what we're attempting to do um, in this event is acknowledge some of those tensions um, and hold space for people to have a really candid and open-hearted conversation. We're putting a mix of people on stage together. So instead of having that kind of traditional keynote, get up on stage, do your pitch, all of our keynotes are conversations um, so we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're putting Catherine Ma, who's the outgoing CEO of Wikipedia, um, background in human rights and technology, uh, on stage with Seb Chan, who's the CEO of Acme and has spent his career curating public spaces in the arts and, and museums. And I've had the, the pleasure of knowing both of them for quite some time. And when I look at their work, I see a real overlap and similarity that they've been devoting their careers to curating public spaces for community participation and engagement in knowledge sharing and and culture and art. And they come from wildly divergent backgrounds and paths to get where they are. But I I did the the initial briefing session with them last week and it was just magical because they they see that and to bring them on stage for an, an open conversation. There's no facilitators. It's just two absolutely incredible people at the top of their game with these kind of backpacks full of experience um, to have a conversation and invite the audience in. Um, I, I, I really honestly believe that opening this up in a candid way is is the only way that we do it and acknowledge that there are challenges inherent in this, in this work. Um, but the the role of a designer is to interpret input and to make decisions with it and to produce outcomes that are uh, open and accessible for a wide public. And so I think if if anyone's going to have a a decent crack at this, the design professions uh, need to be really actively involved. Bonnie, I love your focus on the conversational style of the the conference because they're often, I think, the sessions I feel like I get the most out of. In that spirit, um, Alison, we haven't even given you a chance to get in on this yet. Um, You've got a very interesting background. Could you maybe unpack a little bit for our users how you think you've found yourself in a point in your career where you're now going to be speaking about data-informed design at a conference and, and, and a bit about what that means to you? I know it's really interesting when you find yourself, Vanessa, at this point where you're kind of questioning that yourself. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I started out with a, a background in surveying, land surveying, um, moved into working with space and satellite positioning, and then realized that there was a, a connection between space and uh, surveying and geospatial, which was data. 
and the, the kinds of data that I was working with um, really underpinned a lot of things that that we were trying to deal with as grand challenges as, as human beings. Uh, climate change, sustainability, these are all, these are all challenges that, that we want to look at from the perspective of decision-making that supports recovery in emergencies, supports better resource allocation. And so we really want to give ourselves that edge when it comes to the messiness that uh, Bonnie's talking about, you know, how do we curate data in a way that allows us to make the best decisions in a timely manner as well? So, yeah. That's incredible. I think we've just done an amazing teaser for your conference. Um, For anyone listening, we're halfway through a conversation with Bonnie and Alison. They are both part of the Data Informed Design Conference happening in Melbourne on the 23rd and 24th of March. You can find out more at did.placeintelligence.ai and we'll be speaking with them more in just a moment. Thanks for being with us this evening. You are in for a real treat because we're in the middle of a discussion with Bonnie Shaw and Dr Alison Keeley. They are both speaking at the upcoming... um, data-informed design conference happening in Melbourne on the 24th and 25th of March. And if you have anything to do with uh, data for a living or if you're interested in solving wicked problems, then this is exactly the sort of space I would suggest you'd want to find yourself. Alison, we'd only just started unpacking a bit of your background and um, the ways in which you know data-informed design has been playing out in your career. But I wondered, you know, to help our audience understand a little bit more about, you know, the the power of data and user centricity. Um, what do you really think of when, you know, friends and family around a barbecue say, Alison, what do you do and why does it matter? Um, yeah, if I'm standing around a barbecue and somebody asks me that question, I run really far away <laughs> to start with. Oh, a little heavy, okay. I should have eased in. But um, I think in general, you know, we're, we're used to this already. We're using things like Spotify. We're using things like Airbnb. We're using things that actually make decisions based on our preferences. And this is where the concept of user de- center design comes in and we want to use data as Bonnie said before to remove any biases in our decision making by letting data drive that but in an era of big data what do we do we can't throw all the data at the problem so we we somehow have to curate that data to to make sure we're selecting the best data to make the the decision that we want to make. So it's about making choices, making decisions, and that means we have to understand the data. And then what do you think um, it feels like in terms of the gap between humans understanding what is being served to them based on, you know, what's understood about them from their data and then, uh, and, and you know, the reality of what's happening versus their perception of, of how much data they've given away perhaps? Yeah, and I think that's perhaps been the biggest change in in decision making 
it's the fact that that we have a lot of people who the data is really an input to this process. So they want it communicated to them in a way that's digestible. They want it communicated to them in a way that's understandable. And this is where things like 3D visualizations, 4D visualizations, you know, um, in my workplace, we're building the Digital Twin Victoria platform, which is a 3D, 4D representation of the state of Victoria. And it's an immersive environment into which people can go in and see something like 4,000 data sets currently in there and build their own experience of being in Victoria and in Melbourne from that. There's a lot, I think, to to unpack and dig into when it comes to how data gets used. And you're talking about curating data. Earlier, we were talking about the messiness of data as well and how that's really important in, in order to capture some of that human experience. Um, I know when it, when it comes to selecting the data that might, exa- for example, go behind the decision like where to put a new cell phone tower, that's one type of usage. And then Spotify recommendations are another. One thing I found that with that kind of category of personalized data when it comes to dealing with individual tastes and that kind of thing can be that you often end up cir- circling around the same center of something. Um, I don't know how many of you have ended up creating a playlist where it's just I'm, I'm listening to the same things over and over again. I'm not breaking out. How do you cha- how, how does one tackle that problem of needing to inject that randomness at certain points in certain uses? Yeah, I want to use the word mathematics and say that there are, you know, it's about building the right model. Yeah. Um, And once you've built the right model to represent the, the phenomena that you're trying to describe, then what the data allows you to do then is to say, well, how good is the data that I have to support that model that I'm trying to evaluate. And it's the relationship between those two things that, that creates the, 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 the goodness of oh, the solution. Alison, you're a romantic. That's the most <laughs> romantic uh, description of, you know, building serendipity into your model that I've heard, I think. <laughs> That's quite beautiful. Bonnie, you know, same question to you. You know, how do you, how do you think about, um, you know, introducing those those you know feeding of those very human needs for things actually not to come and hit us just in a really um, relentless you know data seeking way but actually to to meet needs that we might not know that we have yet Mm. yeah so I'm actually a landscape architect by training um, and I I made my way into tech and 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 the work I do now via the way of game design Um, and so Understanding the kind of the interface between information input and human decision making is the kind of critical place for me um, where I get really excited and spend most of my time because when we think about a design professional, they they have spent, uh, you know, up to 10 years training um, with a particular lens on how they see the world and... Uh, it, it is very data-driven in, in many senses, and but it brings this incredible skill set of evaluation, uh, assessment and evaluation, and then decision-making. And, you know, if you think about the sort of evolution and maturity of uh, data analytics, like people talk about the sort of most advanced level of prescription um, and sort of making these decisions about what should happen um, 
And that is essentially what an architect or a, a, a landscape architect might do in a design process. And I think as you weave more um, appropriate forms of data into that decision-making process, you can start to help inform it in really interesting ways. And, and then also keep that learning going. So often in a design practice, you'll do all this assessment work to feed into a, a design that will get built and then the design practitioners often walk away. Um, but with some of the forms of, of data collection and monitoring that we have access to now in the built environment, um, you can actually now learn how those design decisions play out um, and, uh, and learn what does and doesn't work uh, much faster um, which which has a, a much greater impact on how we manage our spaces, which um, you know has a, a long term impact into climate and economy and community and, and a whole range of things that we need to really move the needle on. Can you talk a bit about uh, an example of something uh, that that has been very satisfying for you that you've used data for to solve a problem that's really met some needs? Just yeah, a so, small question. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm just trying to think of some <laughs> examples. Um, so we we do a lot of work at the moment um, at Place Intelligence, my company, where uh, we help different types of organisations, um, often um, university campuses or workplace campuses, understand the utilisation of their buildings and um, and how people might move around those spaces over time. Um, and so when you apply a lens of, um, say, uh, uh, energy usage or space utilization you're trying to get the most out of your asset mm. um, so that you can reduce your 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 energy and, and carbon impact and um, so when we when we kind of reveal some of these um, statistics around how these places are being used it allows uh, these organizations to do more demand-based planning um, it allows them to save uh, significant amount of um, of money in terms of how they run their properties, but also um, has a really quite large impact on their energy usage and and overall footprint in terms of their their carbon outputs. And so, things like that for us uh, are really where the value lies uh, in terms of using this data to inform. They're often not. Um, you know, wildly glamorous decisions that are being made. They're in, in the back end. Um, but they actually have these really profound um, changes to how people operate. Well, workforce movements is an example of data that's, you know, very uh, tangible for a lot of people. But, Alison, you are a technical representative to the Satellite Division of the US Institute of Navigation. And I wonder, you know, if we completely zoom out from, you know, our workforces into the satellites in the air, you know, orbiting our planet, what sort of, you know, data-informed decisions would people be um, interested to, to know are going on? You know, they probably know about weather and what have you and think of military purposes, but um, what else might interest people? Wow, it's, the space is such an exciting area right now. So I think there's two two areas of um, data-driven decision-making that's happening. There's the ones that are happening in space about collision avoidance and situational awareness given the large number of satellites and debris that's up there now. So that's one thing. But there's also um, a lot of... Uh, discussion around the kind of sensors that can be put on these platforms now that are looking down at the earth 
and also looking out into deep space as well. And so all of these sensors that are capturing more, more um, you know, finely grained information that we can now, but what makes it exciting is the ability to do that data processing, that machine learning, that AI, that, that kind of more robust computation, probabilistic computations on the satellites themselves. Oh, I didn't know any of that was happening on the satellites. That's incredible. And I, and I think that, that idea that you capture so much and the risk that you don't have time to analyse is always, you know, that, that, um, that real FOMO. Yeah, what am I missing out? What data am I not using? Yeah. And I think that's the shift that we're making now and saying, maybe I don't need all the data, or maybe I just need data on demand, or maybe I only need to think about um, using exactly the right data for my needs. Well, hopefully we've coined a hashtag data FOMO, we can only hope. <laughs> um, I think... This conversation has definitely made me want to attend this conference, despite the fact that I'll be on the other side of the world at the time. Um, if there's one brief pitch, either, you know, both of you could make to the audience, you know, who should be coming to this conference? Why should they be coming? I would say if you have burning questions about challenges that you are facing with your applications, if you want to learn about how to build robust solutions to your problems, then this is a great place to come and meet a great group of people. And if you want to have a great time doing it, then this is the place to be. <laughs> Sold, Dr. Alison Keeley. Uh, Bonnie, your pitch. I think if you're working, if you're doing any kind of work across the built environment in design, engineering, um, or place-based decision-making, um, understanding the types of data that are available to you, the types of questions that you can, should, and potentially shouldn't ask it, um, and how to think through about communicating it and applying it in decision-making, um, this, is, this is for you. So, you know, just about anyone, really. Thank you. I'm sold. Uh, the conference is the Data Informed Design Conference. It's happening in Melbourne on the 23rd and 24th of March. Uh, the website is did.placeintelligence.ai. Get involved. It couldn't be more exciting and uh, the time couldn't be more ripe for it. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thanks so much. Thank you. On Triple R, you're with Bite Into It for the last little bit. We've got Ro, Lily and I'm Vanessa in studio. Uh, it's been a fun show. We have a little bit more to go. It's weird news of the week time. What do you have, Lily? Oh, there's a, I mean, it feels like all news is weird news <laughs> in this strange time. Yes, but um, something that happened um, earlier this week. A Sydney woman was charged by police for sending 32,397 emails to an MP's office. They haven't named the MP. Um, this was over a 24-hour period. Um, so I assume that she, she had pre-written them all. What sort of platform would even allow that sort of burst to come out of their server without automatically shutting it down? That's, yeah. the, that's the shocker, that this even got through some sort of threshold. Yeah, well, apparently um, she was changing up the email addresses that they were coming from and all kinds of things that you would typically use to evade. The, I, sh I shouldn't be giving tips on how to evade <laughs> these things on air. Sorry. No, um, I'm loving this. She was doing crimes. Doing crimes. And, uh, Which we do not encourage. Yeah, no. Don't do crimes, kids. 
Um, so, uh, yes, sent, sent all these emails from multiple different domains, multiple different email addresses that, that got past the filter. They haven't said why. They haven't said which MP. Um, but that's that's a lot of emails. I mean, do email your MPs, people. It's important to be engaged. But that that's a lot. Yeah. That makes me wonder if they, you know, work for some of those unfriendly spamming companies out there. I mean, that's quite the that's quite the C V moment. Yeah. I, I do <laughs> feel some days that I have about thirty two thousand things I would like to say to my MP. <laughs> Feels like my inbox, but <laughs> I, I loved that um, they said that the email bombing was so severe it impaired workers from operating IT systems and stopped members of the public from making contact with the office. Mm. You know, yeah. 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 Getting in that queue. Honestly would love a day where I didn't receive any email. <laughs> I know when Teams goes down, there's a little bit of a yay, not yay, but yay. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> the tyranny of Inbox Zero, which I do try and live by. It's my own bugbear. Mm. Um <laughs> Deeply inappropriate, but I find it really, really funny. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Ro, you found something that definitely qualifies in the Weird News of the Week box. Ha, I'm so impressed by this. If you've got a spare 2,000 clams just sitting around gathering dust like we all do, you can now buy a 3D printer for chocolate. Um, so from next month, coming to Australia, you can pre-order this 3D printer that you put melted chocolate instead of melted plastic in and you can create personalised treats and stuff like that. Wow. So I I think it's completely adorable. Um, it's called a cocoa press machine um, and it's, yeah, it looks really customer friendly, looks really cute and I think it's just um, a great excuse to waste some money. And- well, I need to check on the scale of what this tool can deliver because, you know, I'm picturing, you know, a truffle-sized chocolate. Is it working at that scale or is it you can create a laptop size, you know, something or other? Um, well, it doesn't look like it's doing laptop-sized full chocolate constructions, but it's definitely doing, I'm waving my hands around, which is great for radio, <laughs> but stuff that's probably like, big. you know, 15 centimetres wide wow, and all that kind of wow. stuff. It's doing little boats. It's doing little oh. love hearts. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, additive manufacturing, it doesn't take much to like melt things and jam and them together. together. All right, I'm starting to be sold and I'm not even a chocolate fan. What, what kind of chocolate do you have to use a specific type? Is it just, it has to be melted? What does it what well, does it take? I'm having a look, but um, I'd love no. if they had standards and went, Hershey's is not going to cut it. You need real chocolate. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> finest Swiss only. Yeah. yeah. Look, we're yes. just going to say it. it's it's not explicit. Um, For best they do results. Pro- yeah, they do provide chocolate cartridges, which have got um, 70 grams of a blend of cocoa solids and palm oil. Um, which sounds like most chocolates, Bro, but a that's little bit where gross. They always get you, isn't it? It's sure the printer's kind of not really affordable, but the cartridges. How much? Where it is? Yeah, um, they're they're uh, sixty eight Australian, about US forty nine dollars oh, each. Are they so. even interchangeable with other? Pr- anyway, does the chocolate I dare taste you to, good? I dare you to stick it into a regular three D <laughs> printer. Absolutely, double dog dare you. <laughs> oh my gosh, um, it's just a matter of time before this happens. Snacks ahoy. <laughs> I, I believe that there was a, you know, one of those food TV series, was it MasterChef, that did let people have 3D printers, food printers. So they were trying oh, things really? with sugar for a while. They really? were doing a lot of sugar art. And sugar can be quite dangerous to work with. So it did feel a bit like we're automating the dirty, dangerous work out there and we're, we're creating it through here. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I'll dig that. Yeah. They made amazing uh, physical shapes like interlocking cubes and what have you, but out of oh. sugar. So that was... Kind of. Well, that's impressed. a bit fancier than a croquembouche with a bit of a sponge sugar <laughs> top to it. And does anyone enjoy eating that net anyway? 
I don't think so. I had one for my 21st birthday and by the time it came to cut the profiterole, it was quite the soggy mess. It's... But we'd been drinking black sample because I didn't <laughs> care. Cut the profiterole does sound um, a little bit like a euphemism, but uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> move wasn't. on to that. We have, we have digressed a fair bit from our, our, our tech remit, although I think, you know, pyramidal construction almost gets in there. It's engineering. It's, yeah. it's engineering. It's close. We're, we're there. We've gotten loose. We on International Women's Day, and that is our prerogative, and gosh darn if we won't take it. <laughs> um, we want to call out an amazing event that's coming up. Ro, tell us about what Vic ICT for Women is doing next. Great. So they're doing an event. It's an in-person one called Designing Impactful Solutions That Stick, which is on Wednesday, 22nd of March from 5.30 to 7.30pm at ANZ in Docklands. I mean, you'd have to miss Bite, but you can catch us on demand afterwards. So we <laughs> you really can. recommend we you do podcast. both. Yeah. <laughs> we podcast. So do both. So all about um, the importance of human-centred design, fancy that, and how you can apply it to your world. So just tickets via their website, um, Vic ICT for Women. Google it. Get your tickets. It's all is well in the world. Sensational. Hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening from the Data Informed Design Conference. We had Bonnie Shaw and Dr. Alison Keeley. Do check them out. Thanks to my fellow hosts tonight, Ro and Lily. Really appreciate that. Thanks for I being looked at the wrong ones you. of you when I was saying your names, but, you know, it's not a visual medium. Um, <laughs> thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, and podcaster, Carrie Smythe. We've been bite into it. We will be back next Wednesday evening. But until then, stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Bumpy and Emmy up next. Have a great night. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.